A hot sun burns down on the mountains of southern Nevada. And that same hot sun bears down on the gambling mecca that is the Las Vegas Strip. And just a few yards off Las Vegas Boulevard is a new race course. Not the Grand Prix circuit that we've known for the past two years, but a brand new five-turn, mile-and-an-eighth distorted oval. It's the scene today for not the Grand Prix road racers, but the drivers of the Indy cars of kart. It's time for the Indy cars to race in Las Vegas for the first time. All rookies, all new track records. We're here in Las Vegas with 26 cars sitting on the main straightaway as they prepare to run the first. Caesars Palace 200. Hello, I'm Paul Page with three-time Indianapolis 500 winner Bobby Unser. And the last time the IndyCar drivers raced here as a group was back in 1957. The great Jimmy Bryan won that race. But, Bobby, when they come here today, it's a whole clean sheet of paper. Well, it is, Paul. We have what I term as a parking lot racetrack, and it's got nothing but a parking lot and cement barriers all over the place and a lot of grandstands and a lot of people truthfully i think it's going to make for a very interesting and good race and it's more like a road course than anything else but you always turn left here not to the right <laughs> it's already created some remarkable circumstances the front row is made up entirely of rookies there's a rookie in the second row perhaps even more remarkable is in the eighth row is the defending cart champion rick mears and back at the back of the field added by the promoter's option because they did not qualify Indianapolis 500 winners Tom Sneva and Johnny Rutherford. So it's going to be an exciting day. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello, friends. How you doing? We uh, uh, call ourselves Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports, and my name is Tim Hanlon. I'm sort of the uh, chief cook and bottle washer around here, otherwise known as uh, various things, but let's call myself the, this week the doctor of defunct. Uh, as we uh, investigate uh, various things, teams, leagues, uh, situations, uh, events, and the like uh, in the realm of pro sports that for whatever reasons aren't, aren't around anymore. Uh, we don't, you know, sometimes the reasons are common, sometimes they're just odd uh, and uh, hard to believe and oftentimes somewhere uh, nestled in between those two extremes. But we we appreciate you finding us, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds, and uh, we know how many choices you have out there in podcast land. God, God almighty. Uh, but uh, thanks for making us a little choice uh, in your uh, listening uh, uh, journeys this week. We appreciate it. Um, as you heard from the clip, we're back to auto racing. Uh, you know, I, as I, as you've heard in previous episodes, I, I you know, I'm, I'm sort of a, maybe a closet gearhead in that regard. I, I've only sort of warmed to, I guess the elongated history of racing in this country, certainly not something I grew up with and uh, not in my blood uh, or my veins per se. But uh, when you look at uh, documentary series by people like uh, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. with uh, his Lost Speedways uh, episodes on um, uh, Peacock uh, streaming service, fantastic and fascinating stuff. And it just uh, opens my mind to all kinds of different sort of things in the realm of racing uh, sir, sure. The you know the uh, the the Indy 500 and the uh, Daytona 500. Those are sort of iconic, if even for sort of uh, uh, you know basic fans such as myself. But the more I dig into uh, the uh, the the sport of auto racing, so many little uh, treasure troves of uh, of history and and abandoned racetracks and 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 stories and and races that came and, and went 
um, and some of the odd circumstances around those. And so I, you know, I, I'm opening that door as much as we can, uh, and, and hopefully, frankly, love to get Dale Jr. Uh, on this show uh, to talk about lost raceways because it's it's just great stuff. I mean, just fascinating, fascinating stories. Not just the the structures, but the the people and the uh, the situations uh, that uh, filled them the, in the uh, in those uh, times. Um, but we're going to kind of skate into a little bit of that vibe this week uh, with our guest this week, Randy Cannon, and uh, in particular, we're going to go into racing in Las Vegas. Now, I think most of you know the Las, Ma- the Las Vegas uh, Motor Speedway, which uh, hosts a lot of NASCAR races uh, each year, uh, a bit of uh, IndyCar as well, uh, and has been there for you know a couple of decades now up uh, in the north northern part of the Las Vegas uh, metropolitan area, nowhere near the Strip. It's a, it's a trek. Um, but uh, we, we want to get into, uh, I think, um, I think two uh, seminal uh, racetracks and uh, and the races that were in them in Las Vegas that really set the stage uh, for what uh, the Las Vegas Motor Speedway is now today. Uh, and these are places that don't exist anymore, but have fascinating, albeit short-term histories. Uh, one is called the Stardust International Raceway, which existed from 1965 to 1971 uh, and was affiliated with the uh, the old Stardust Hotel, Resort, and Casino. Uh, it was located in Spring Valley, uh, the part of, uh, of Las Vegas, um, not necessarily uh, near the Stardust Resort itself. But as you'll hear in our conversation with Randy, it was uh, an interesting, um, I wouldn't call it a temporary uh, racing facility, but it kind of had temporariness uh, elements to it. Um, and it didn't last for very long, for sure. But uh, Can-Am, Trans-Am, a USAC Champ Car, which was what Indy cars were called at the time, all uh, had races uh, in that period of time. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was just a part of the effort, an effort of the, the owners of the Stardust uh, Hotel and Casino to draw people to Las Vegas, not unlike boxing matches and whatnot, creating events for the uh, high roller crowd, uh, and uh, obviously keep them staying around and and uh, enjoying the uh, enjoying the festivities and the excitement of racing. But of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, gambling uh, early and often before uh, and after uh, said race. Now, as we'll hear in our conversation with Randy, uh, the race itself not sort of subject to gambling, even though at the time Las Vegas in the late '60s, very early 1970s really was the only place in the U.S. where you could not only legally gamble, but of course, legally gamble on sports. Uh, the interesting thing about the story, while lots of mob ties and lots of sort of interesting shenanigans with with money and shell companies and, and why uh, all the acreage devoted to a racetrack uh, would be of interest to a hotel and casino, uh, we'll get into all that. But interestingly, one of the things that don't that didn't cross over was gambling on the race itself, uh, which you think would be kind of susceptible to, but it wasn't. We'll get into that uh, in our conversation in a few moments. But uh, that Stardust International uh, Raceway was a, a, an oddly shaped track and uh, had a, a, a whole bunch of great races uh, in all of those series. Uh, and um, uh, alas, only uh, really had some major races, I think from 66 through 68, and it came back. It was also a um, a drag strip too. So uh, there was some um, NHRA uh, or the predecessor of the NHRA uh, 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 drag races there too. Uh, a fascinating start. And actually, uh, the Stardust uh, Raceway, 
uh, once it uh, uh, went away in 1971, really became the genesis for the beginnings of uh, what is now the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Uh, something called the Speedrome was originally built on where the uh, Motor Speedway now sits. And that kind of launched in 1972. So it was really the Stardust International Raceway that kind of got racing going in the Las Vegas area. And in many respects could be looked upon as the uh, the true predecessor uh, of what is today the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Um, but during uh, the Speedway's existence, something else actually popped up uh, in uh, the early 1980s. And this was in the parking lot of Caesars Palace. Yes, another hotel and casino. And yes, another attempt by different owners of said casino and resort uh, to draw people to a major event in racing, major events, plural, in racing. Uh, this was called the Caesars Palace Grand Prix. And for the first two years of its existence in 1981 and 1982, it was a Formula One uh, series event. As a matter of fact, in both of those years, 81 and 82, it was the, e the end race, the final race, to determine the overall series champion. Fascinating stuff. And of course, it went away after two years. Um, and we'll have some pictures of the race course of this, but you have to imagine this is sort of a serpentine isn't even the proper word. Imagine, I guess, getting on line for uh, a very popular ride, let's say Space Mountain at Disney World. You know how you sort of queue up and then you sort of, uh, in a, a labyrinthian kind of fashion, you kind of, you walk forward and then you walk backwards and forwards and backwards. You're all sort of compressed and you keep going, winding down. You don't feel like you're making any progress, but literally, if you stretched it out, it would be a really long line, but it, they condense the line into sort of a, a square kind of environment. Well, that's kind of what this Caesars Palace Grand Prix layout was, was like. And again, we'll have some pictures on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode uh, with Randy Cannon, episode number 236. Um, and you'll just see how um, uh, I, 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 just, uh, just curious and um, repetitive and uh, uh, in some respects unimaginative, I guess. Uh, but there it was, this um, almost, uh, well, it was almost like a mile and a half, two miles long um, uh, course that was uh, situated literally in the parking lot of, of the Caesars Palace um, uh, compound there. Uh, clearly uh, a, a, a place for various spectacles over the years, right? Uh, the um, famous uh, uh, jump, uh, the motorcycle jumps of um, Evil Knievel sort of headquartered there. Lots of boxing matches uh, in the parking lot there. And, and this was an attempt to bring uh, the top racing uh, Formula One drivers uh, into the mix in Las Vegas. But it they, they failed kind of miserably. Uh, they were exciting and interesting races for sure. They were televised, uh, but uh, the uh, attendance was not that great and uh, not a lot of uh, added value uh, seen. However, that didn't stop people from uh, trying again. And in 1983 and 1984, you had the Indy cars uh, come to uh, in a more modified, kind of more road course like, more oval esque kind of like uh, approach. Essentially, use the name of Grand Prix, the Las Vegas Grand Prix. Uh, actually, I think it was also known as the Las Vegas 200, and it was part of the Cart series. Now, if you remember Cart uh, from one of our previous episodes, we um, 
uh, got extensively into that one with uh, John Overitz, uh, Orivitz, uh, uh in episode uh, 216, from talking about the uh, split, the Indianapolis uh, split between CART uh, and USAC uh, and the Indy Racing League. Well, CART, as you remember, uh, was the, uh, the, the place where all the major uh, drivers ultimately went and split from the Indianapolis uh, Motor Speedway uh, setup there. And CART was, uh, for two years, uh, racing at Caesars Palace in this new modified uh, startup. And that clip that you just heard was from uh, the 1983 Las Vegas 200, also known as the Las Vegas Grand Prix, although not Formula One anymore. It was CART. Uh, that's Paul Page and Bobby Unser setting up the uh, the uh, the race on um, NBC Sports World. Yeah, if you remember that, that's uh, sort of uh, uh, their version of ABC's Wide World of Sports or CBS's uh, Sports Spectacular, the anthology on uh, October eighth, nineteen eighty three, uh, and that was actually part of a double header because the IndyCar race, the Kart IndyCar race, uh, won by Mario Andretti, a pretty exciting race if you look at the footage. Uh, was preceded by the Trans Am uh, race, another Trans Am race, uh, won by a one really T Ribs, uh, who you may remember from just this summer, still at it uh, in his advanced age, racing in the uh, SRX circuit with Tony Stewart and friends. Anyway, but I digress. That was the first. That clip was from the first, uh, and then uh, only to be followed by one other cart series race, uh, also in this parking lot, a revised. Uh, 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 set up there, the Caesars Palace uh, Grand Prix setup. And that's what we're going to get into today. These are all just fascinating parts of what is now, I guess, uh, I guess the legacy of Las Vegas and racing. And we get into some fascinating little tidbits about the mob, the racers, uh, why racing in the, in the desert, why Las Vegas, uh, all of that stuff. And frankly, we also get into, will we ever see Formula One again? Uh, there have been discussions and, and dis, uh, thoughts about uh, bringing a, a Formula One race back to Las Vegas, despite these uh, idiosyncratic attempts earlier, and not to the Las Vegas Motor Speedway, um, uh, but to the, the Strip itself, uh, which could be very exciting, but uh, I think pretty daunting in terms of a logistical challenge. We get into all of that stuff. It's endlessly fascinating. I'm not doing it any justice. Uh, and if you're not even a racing fan, yeah, th stick around. I think you're going to find this really fascinating because Las Vegas, uh, entertainment, gambling, the mob, auto racing, all of it is uh, entwined into this conversation with our guest this week, Randy Cannon, uh, by the way, the author of two great books on about both of the Caesars Palace Grand Prix and the Stardust International Raceway. You will enjoy it for sure. Uh, stick around uh, in a moment's time. We're going to get into it deeply uh, coming right up. First, a quick promotional message. Please, let's uh, thank our good friend out in San Diego. His name is Dean Mitchell, and his site is called SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Uh, as you probably know by now, if you haven't checked him out, if you're literally looking for thousands of one-of-a-kind sports history collectibles, that's programs, yearbooks, guides, media guides, uh, magazines, caps, pennants, replica stadiums, postcards, ticket stubs, jerseys, mugs, and more, all the memorabilia you could ever want from all kinds of leagues and teams from sports uh, that are no longer with us. That includes racing, auto racing for sure, but things like hockey and football and baseball and soccer and basketball, Olympics, tennis, uh, all kinds of stuff. It's it's a it's a, just a treasure trove, and they're extremely well photographed, so you know what you're going to get. 
they're attractively priced. There's no bidding. It's just, it's, it's a set pricing and there's new inventory coming online all the time. Check them out at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And when you uh, find that item or items that you just can't uh, not live without, please use the promo code that saves you 15% on all of your purchases. And that code is good seats, good seats. That's the promo code at sportshistorycollectibles.com for 15% off all of your purchases. Thank you to Dean and his pals out in San Diego for the sponsorship of the show. We love the site. We love the stuff. We know you will too. And hopefully you'll love this episode coming right up. Here it is. Here's our conversation. We talk about Caesar's Palace's various Grand Prix, as well as the, uh, uh, frankly, the uh, uh, elemental uh, Stardust International Raceway, the, the progenitor, if you will, the originator, if you will, of uh, the, the, the of what now exists as the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Without it, uh, the Motor Speedway of today would not exist. And we're getting into why right now. Here's our chat with Randy Cannon that we had just last week. Please, as always, enjoy. We try to keep a, a fairly uh, open mind and sort of broad uh, palette, I guess. And and motorsports is is absolutely something that we've gotten into on a number of different occasions. I mean, we've talked about uh, IROC on a couple of occasions. We've gotten into... Um, uh, a couple of tracks like uh, uh, Riverside and um, uh, and, you know, I, I'm fascinated, for example, with lost speedways that uh, show that uh, Dale Jr. and um, uh, his colleagues have been doing for the last couple of seasons, uh, sort of looking at abandoned raceways and stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm a closet race fan in some way, shape or form. And, <laughs> and, and and the fact that, you know, that racetracks are kind of these ultimate ghosts until they're you know demolished and and and, and rebuilt on top of, right. I'm perhaps along with racetracks, right. When the, those things are abandoned, um, you can hear the history in those things because they're so gigantic. Uh, and obviously they're, they just evoke all kinds of memories and stuff. And I, and I got to think that, uh, perhaps some of your, uh, earliest interest in this sort of genre perhaps is, is around some of those maybe abandoned memories, but, but I'm, I'm presuming. Very much so. Uh, it actually, writing Stardust and in turn Caesars started from memories. I, I uh, grew up in the Las Vegas Valley before I moved away. And and uh, as I was helping a friend push out information on one of his motorsports projects, kind of rekindled my recollections of Stardust International Raceway uh, in the uh, mid to late 60s in the Las Vegas Valley. And, and it was from those memories of having attended races as a preteen. And uh, so that was that was that was really the point of origin of, of the Stardust book and 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 somewhat in turn Caesar's Palace Grand Prix. OK, so do you do, give our audience a bit of a sense of your background? I mean, are you a journalist or a writer by trade or is this more of a, a passion project or a series of projects? Because, I mean, I, I will tell our audience that these books that we'll, we'll heavily promote at the beginning and the end of the, uh, the episode uh, are just exhaustively uh, researched and uh, just chock full of of all kinds of information and stuff. I, you know, um, a passion, if it's a passion project, boy, oh boy, I, I wonder what you excluded from the rest of your life. But if you were, if you've been a writer or a journalist in your past or in your present, uh, kudos because the skills are really coming through on this. That's very kind. No, I, I do not have any uh, journalism or professional writing in my background other than for business subjects. These, these arose, these arose from my memories and my desire to write something 
to uh, write a history where heretofore the history did not exist. Or it was it was it was uh, very poorly documented. That was really the the, the origin of both of these uh, studies and and the resultant storytelling. Yeah, as they say, if you can't find the book you're looking for, you got to you got to write it, right? So, exactly. All right. Well, exactly. Let, let, let's start with the earlier work, and then we'll get into the, the current one because I, I don't want to give either one uh, short shrift. But uh, I think maybe uh, just from a, a an episodic or a a, a longitudinal perspective, right, that makes sense to kind of maybe start with the Stardust story, simply because this was sort of a story of the of the uh, of the mid to late 1960s, which was a very interesting uh, time in Las Vegas's history. But it's very interesting, and, and I, I said this in my email to you, um, in both of these books, right, um, there is a certain word <laughs> that seems to permeate both of them. That is, that is the mob. But I, I don't want to sort of over overlay that story too quickly, but maybe a little bit of an understanding of this Stardust International Wasteway, because it's named after a pretty influential hotel and casino at that time and, and for some time in Las Vegas's shall we say, semi-modern history in the 60s? Very, very specifically, yes. The, 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 the book Stardust International Raceway arose from my, my simple desire to do what I could to document the history. Uh, I, I attended races there in my youth, the, the vaunted uh, Canadian-American Challenge Cup Series of the 1960s, the Can-Am, if you will. Um, and it, it, most of the prominent racers nationally and internationally raced in the Can-Am and I got to see the 1968 event. It was the swan song of Can-Am at Stardust. But fast forward uh, approximately 50 years and and there was little more than a few sentences written about Stardust anywhere. Uh, and so I thought there's got to be a deep history here. And I want to, I just want to test my research and, and writing skill sets differently than I'd do, ever done before. So I started to dig in. And like a lot of these stories, I started to follow uh, the property, and I started to follow the money and learn about the relationships kind of be, behind the scenes, behind the curtain. And it started as International Raceway turned into a fascinating uh, Las Vegas story. Um, and it became Motorsports Meets the Mob in Vegas. And uh, once the mob is engaged, uh, you know, the, the trail inevitably leads to uh, offshore Swiss and Bahamian bank accounts. And that's kind of how the story worked. Uh, so it was it was it was a lot of fun. I, you know, I I knew of Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and uh, but I thought what what came what came before that? Um, Stardust was certainly existed, and I, I found out what came before Stardust, and so it became it, this Stardust story is basically the origin story of Las Vegas Motor Speedway as one uh, connects the dots forward. Yeah, well, for for our audience and for those who are like not NASCAR junkies or or uh, other motorsports, the, the Las Vegas Motor Speedway uh, actually got its start as something known as the Speedrome back in 1972. But that that actually was just relatively uh, a short time after the coming and going of the what six or seven years of this Stardust International Raceway. So it's very interesting, and I wonder at some point perhaps if there is a, a linkage historically either at the current track or perhaps maybe there's a, a case to be made for it. But, but what was it about Stardust that kind of, I mean, it almost seems, again, I, you are more the professional on this story than I am. It almost seems though this was a confluence of things, right? Gambling, uh, Las Vegas, uh, certainly becoming a modern, you know, adult playground uh, after a very interesting start a decade or two prior, if you will. And, 
but also sort of the popularity of racing and trying to uh, establish some, uh, I don't know, beacons of of um, of racing in the West. Right. Which was, you know, historically, uh, you know, we've seen it in Southern California and uh, various other places. Um, Las Vegas, I guess, truly was not really on the map, per se, for motorsports at that time. No, there there was a there was a predecessor facility in nearby Henderson, Nevada, still within the four walls of the Las Vegas Valley, that all had its own connections to to uh, racketeers and and uh, uh, to the uh, gaming establishments of the time. But Stardust really, I mean, really elevated the concept in the valley. Uh, it was the first of it, a real the first of its true international caliber. Uh, motorsports facility in the valley, although it was still very rustic, but it did host an a, a internationally sanctioned event, and it did have a relationship to the Stardust Hotel. But like much of what was going on in the Las Vegas Valley in the fifties and sixties, uh, it appeared to be. You, you mentioned the term beachhead. It, it appeared to be more of a beachhead about tying up land, and the opportunities to flow money through that land, uh, work deals through that land. The Sun Belt Southwest is rife with stories about connections between legitimate business and organized crime elements uh think not so much mafia as as more of a a broader coalition of 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 syndicate racketeers and they tie up big huge pieces of land and uh they would cook deals by way of these pieces of land they might buy someone might buy a piece of property for for half a million dollars and sell it the next day for five million and oh by the way as part of that tracks transaction someone might get an off the book number of points in a, in a las vegas casino it was i think it was more about uh these these behind the the, the scenes machinations than really uh, a r- real true interest in the promotion of motorsports the cover story was let's get people out to the racetrack and uh, if we can get them to the racetrack and vice versa back to the casino and and we'll just try to you know the word synergy had not been invented yet, but you know they were they were trying to synthesize that that those those hopefully overlapping interests. But I, I think it was much more about the almost 640 uh, acres of land, uh, roughly a square mile, and how they could otherwise use that property. That, see, that's really interesting. So, seems like a pretty expensive and extravagant way to, shall we say, create a front for money, right? To put to go through the motions of professional racing and all the things involved to kind of get sanctioned and, and all the facilities and all that kind of stuff. But essentially that's kind of what you're hinting at is that this is a sort of a major, I guess, if you will, wink and nod kind of front, if you will, for the main business of, of gaming and, and other, shall we say, related businesses, quote unquote. By all, by, by my research and by all appearances. Yeah, it was, it was much more that, 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 that 640 acres are actually 480 of the 640 were, were, were dedicated for the raceway. The other 160 had their own interesting history that I tried to uh, give a tip to in the book, but it appeared to be much more uh, th- this, just a placeholder in this, in this labyrinth financial system of, of the syndicate of the era. Um, by all my research, by all appearances, by every document I could unearth, uh, it great. It had the Can-Am series. That was my point. That was my point of entry and my, my point, my origin point of interest. But did it, uh, as I as I researched and researched and got into FBI files and and any number of other deep studies on property in the Sun Belt Southwest and other large development properties around the country, uh, it appeared to me much more this confluence of 
of uh, organized crime interests and their counterparts in legitimate business and how they would manipulate uh, large pieces of property. Yeah, well, externally, what, what, what was it being what was being sold, so to speak, uh, to the to the I don't know, the racing fan or the 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 uh, uh, the traveler, the uh, the vacationer, the the high roller whatever. I mean, so th- this was related directly to the Stardust Hotel. Yes. And, and, and the there was a racing association essentially created around this to what ostensibly attract people to. Uh, I guess high rollers to the hotel as well as have another sort of entertainment venue, right? It was it was to uh, try to overlap those streams of those apparent streams of income, get people to the hotel, get them out to the track, and 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 then get them back to the hotel, get people to the track who might not otherwise gamble, and just try to elevate the you know the the attractions of Las Vegas as a, as a destination. Um, there weren't a lot of tracks in the in the uh, desert Southwest at the time Stardust would generally compete against Riverside, um, which from, you know, much larger population center, obviously. And, and against that population center, Stardust drew okay numbers. Um, and, uh, if, 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 uh, if you think of the movie Ford V Ferrari, uh, motorsports was, it was in a, a huge growth curve in the 1960s, uh, stimulated by subjects like Ford versus Ferrari and by the uh, the movie Grand Prix, the James Garner Garner Star Vehicle, and so there there was certainly a, a an interest in in coming alongside th- that that sort of uh, uh, synthesis of of motorsports and fashion and pop culture and 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 dump a uh, dump a serviceable uh, race destination in the Las Vegas Valley. It kind of went along with a lot of other things that were going on in the 1960s. Yeah. So in essence, this is sort of the, uh, the, I guess, the, almost part of the template, if you will, that was sort of evolving at the time. I mean, with obviously big stars, you know, and, the, and their uh, showcases, you know, on the strip, you know, whether it's singers or comedians or uh, various forms of entertainment, but also events. Right. I mean, uh, boxing, right, is sort of a, a long time legacy thing. Right. It, it, it seems like the the idea of a Grand Prix or a race of some sort. We'll get into that with Caesars Palace in a few minutes. Um, it almost feels like sort of the um, uh, almost sort of the a manufactured event, if you will, that sort of is tailor made for the you know extended weekend uh, excursion to Las Vegas, right? Lots of things to do, and maybe the excuse to come is the event itself, and all the various things around it are you know arguably where a lot of the uh, the various uh, forms of money are made. Uh, maybe almost to the exclusion, if you will, the event is almost like a, a, a canard or a, a distraction. Very much so. The, 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 the very simple reason for the existence of Las Vegas is gambling, to some extent, the state of Nevada gambling, and uh, everything else is kind of on the periphery. It's the casino that serves, that, that, that is the, the, the core of the existence of everything else. To the extent motorsports can serve the casino, it might work uh, to the at the point that the uh, that the motorsports attraction doesn't uh, doesn't affect the the uh, take in the count room. Uh, you know that night on the day of the motorsports event, then that motorsports event is is going to have a have a pretty short lifespan. All right. So so I, I, two questions, I guess. Number one is how with that kind of background and that somewhat. Um, still formative kind of history, right? And gambling really kind of really concentrated still, this is at this time of the United States, 
very much uh, uh, Las Vegas was kind of really the only place where legalized gambling was really allowed to sort of, you know, flourish. Um, how does how does a, how does a, an environment like that, um, shall we say, uh, professionalize themselves enough to curry favor with, you know, sanctioning bodies and you know, a legitimate sport in racing in various forms, right? I, I can't imagine USAC and, and trans, the Trans Am people and, and, you know, essentially just saying in open arms, oh, we're just going to, sure, let's go to Vegas. What, what could happen, right? I mean, I, I'm sure the allure of a, of a new facility and, and promotion and, and some of the pizzazz certainly was attractive, but I, I, were people sort of looking the other way? I, people had to have an arched eyebrow with sort of this, uh, I don't know, uh, this uh, uh, intrigue about having racing in the midst of, you know, a, a furtive gambling environment. It, it's uh, it's an interesting point. If one thinks of how long it took stick and ball sports to to uh, enter the Las Vegas market at the at the premier professional level, uh, it was in the course of, of uh, uh, riding Stardust that the Golden Knights and, and the Raiders announced their intentions to play in Las Vegas. But before that point, there'd never been a, a premier level sport of any type other than these motorsports ventures that, that raced at Stardust. And the first event I documented in the Stardust book was the 1954 uh, AAA championship event at an old uh, thoroughbred track, roughly near where the Las Vegas Con- Convention Center is. And and the, uh, the op-ed pieces around the country expressed a lot of concern about this, you know, the, the vaunted uh, Indianapolis 500 based AAA championship series racing in Las Vegas and, and what, what the prospects might be for, for uh, a driver uh, throwing the race uh, being, being influenced by, by the book, if you will, you know, the sports, the, the sports betting. And uh, I mean, that was, they were worried about it in 54. Um, they were when, when uh, Indy, the IndyCar series of the time uh, under USAC returned in 1968, the the uh, the op-ed pages were were quite a bit different. As I interviewed Bobby Unser and Mario Andretti, both of them loved going to Vegas in the 1960s. So, uh, with 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 their influences, um, uh, r- those races were were much more widely accepted. Las Vegas was was uh, it was respectable enough that it could be a destination for for uh, the Can-Am series and uh, a uh, USAC IndyCar event in 1968. Drag racing too, right? Yes. Um, drag racing was, was, it was still in it. Uh, it's somewhat in its relative infancy in the 1960s. It don't, it, it hadn't been around on an organized basis more than about 10 years, roughly. And, uh, uh, there were only, I believe four NHRA national events that occurred all year long contrast to, you know, the pre pandemic, at least there were probably 18 to 20 national events, something like that. And, uh, the events that that raced at Stardust were were called. They weren't they weren't an NHRA national event. Again, there were only four of those. Uh, they were called an NHRA National Open, and it, it would attract a pretty good national level uh, category of drivers to come to. And Las Vegas was probably the draw, um, but uh, and and Las Vegas benefited from its proximity to Southern California, which was really the the hotbed of of drag racing in the 1960s. So it was kind of a natural, natural uh, uh, confluence there. How was the racing itself? Um, maybe a little bit of your personal memories of it too. Uh, uh, what did one see that in your mind's eye that you can remember 
when one approached and went into this facility. I can't imagine it was, um, shall we say, uh, exuding a, a feeling of permanence in terms of stands and, 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 and or, or was it? And, and it just sort of came and went after five or six years. I mean, it, was it almost kind of makeshift and, and sort of what was it like sort of in the, in the arena, so to speak? And what would you sort of characterize both from memory as well as research, the uh, quality of the racing itself? The, the uh, property itself was very rustic gravel pit type of type of uh, uh, lay of the land. Uh, the facilities were primitive. It was a drag strip and a uh, a ribbon uh, asphalt of road course that connected both ends of the drag strip. The stands there, there were some grandstands. They were they were they were kind of primitive rustic grandstands, but they then they could be towed around the strip. They might use them in one position for drag races and another position for the Canem events. Uh, the racing was was typically pretty good. Uh, the problem in Las Vegas, as it as it is today in Las Vegas Motor Speedway, is the heat. Um, there was a NHRA Division Seven event there for a couple of years, and and uh, uh, they tried to run it late afternoon and into the evening. But it was one of those classic Las Vegas days where the, the temperature at eight o'clock at night was when they're still trying to race is was probably still over one hundred and ten degrees. Um, the drag racers suffered from the altitude a bit. Their, their engines did, I should say. Uh, the, the performances here were were probably about 5% off uh, the national records that would typically be set at speed level. The, uh, the road racing events, I mean, it was just a cream of the crop of road racing in the 1960s in the Can-Am series. Uh, so it was, the, it was the only chance that I was ever going to see Mario Andretti and John Sturtees and and uh, Jackie Stewart, Parnelli Jones, Dan Gurney, George Fulmer, uh, the list goes on. Uh, the uh, at the Canem event I went to, the it was it was a bit windy that day. The, the, so all of this unimproved gravel land around the racetrack just it kicked up into dust. Dust would start to blow across the the paved surface of the course. Um, it was a pretty racy course. Mario Andretti actually liked it. Uh, in hindsight, he wished that the Caesars Palace Grand Prix could have been run at Stardust, um, much better track. But uh, it was it was very rustic. It was uh, I uh, it, it can contrast it with photographs of Riverside, which is in you know kind of the um, the grassy tree lined uh, uh, Southlands of California, and there there was just no there was just no contest in terms of which which was a more amenable race destination temperature. Uh, the surface of the runoffs around the track, every, everything was it was uh, was difficult to start us. Get off the pavement, and and uh, a racer would be out in the gravel in a hurry, hard gravel. Yeah. So it was it was asphalt, right? Asphalt pavement, and sure. and maybe describe for the audience just what uh, it, this was a this was a road course. It was a, what almost three miles in length, right? Correct, correct. It was it was a pretty competent road course. Uh, there are videos on YouTube of uh, the 1966 through 68 Can-Am events, as I recall. And it is remarkable how fast those, those uh, cars were uh, going around that three mile racetrack. It had fast sweep, sweeping turns, tight hairpins, uh, very classically shaped S's. Uh, there's imagery of, of Jim Hall and, and uh, Phil Hill racing their high winged chaparrales around the course. And it's, the speed they were they, they were they were hitting was just phenomenal. It had a, had a long, long, slightly curved back straight 
um, that was on the uh, the east side of, of the race property. And uh, they, they would they would probably get, I would say, 180 miles an hour on that long back straight, maybe maybe a little faster than that uh, before uh, breaking really hard for the carousel that would bring them back around to the drag strip front straightaway. Uh, but it was it was an extremely fast track. Not a lot of elevation change, pretty relatively flat corners, but uh, a lot of places to pass and, and uh, a lot of places to go fast. All right. So you're mentioning the racers seemingly had some good memories and good times here. You've got a number of different circuits that are uh, immediately attracted to the new bright light on the on the circuit. But it only lasts for a good five or six years, I think, in terms of of supporting races and stuff. So and I know you've got 450 plus pages sort of devoted to all this. But if you can synopsize what's what's going on in those five years that does not make this thing sort of last much longer. I mean, the shenanigans uh, uh, ensue. uh, Is it? Is it kind of like the entertainers on the strip who uh, remember somewhat fondly working for, quote unquote, the mob? They were always nice to me, but they didn't sort of necessarily ask questions. I mean, what were sort of the overlaps here between uh, the business of Las Vegas and this uh, this racing circuit? Because it all sounds pretty darn fine to me until, you know, but it didn't last very long. No, I, I I wanted to study what became what came before Stardust, the the, the formative steps that led to Stardust, and and frankly, the, I, I pick up the storyline uh, in the post World War II uh, and how uh, uh, land became uh, kind of the kind of the stock and trade of, of the gravel barons around the valley. That led that that, that led to the creation of a, of the raceway I mentioned out in in uh, Henderson. Uh, Thunderbird Speedway had a fascinating story and it shut down. And shortly thereafter, uh, there's this push to, to develop uh, Stardust International Raceway in the, in the uh, Western Highlands of the Las Vegas Valley where nothing existed, uh, no water, no sewer, no roads, nothing. And it, the, the, uh, the backstory of the, the presumed relationship to the Stardust Hotel, the prior, uh, Racing history, uh, the earliest premier event was in 1954, that AAA championship event at the old thoroughbred track where the Indy Roadsters of the era uh, would put on dirt tires and run around a one-mile thoroughbred dirt oval. It was the finale of the 1954 championship season. So I wanted to use the the, the study to kind of connect the dots, what came before Stardust and how does Stardust then, what becomes of the land of Stardust? Uh, and there were some really interesting backstories uh, in, in that land, not just the four, 480 that Stardust was developed on those 480 acres, but the 160 acres directly adjacent appeared to have a, an arm's length relationship to uh, illegal campaign contributions to the uh, Nixon uh, it, uh, committee to reelect the president. I mean, it was it's that weird of a story. Uh, and then what becomes of the land and, and uh, um the uh, what be, what uh, it was just it just seemed to go on for go on forever and and the the connections at start at, at that that 480 acres of property the people who touched it the the connections spread out across the country uh, they they spread into uh, they they arched forward into the uh, emergence of, of of corporate ownership of gambling properties which was a, another interesting aspect of the of the study 
the Stardust property uh, was acquired by one of these very early gambling corporations. And so the, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a blip in time. The raceway itself, it ran from 65 to late uh, fall of 65 to January of 69, then shut down for about a year and a half and then reemerged to run for a couple more years, uh, drag racing only. Uh, but the, the tentacles uh, that was that spread out from this property, the, the backstory and the connecting of the dots to lead up to Stardust, and then wh- where did where did how did that what were the, what what was behind the disposition of that property post raceway, uh, and where did where what, what were the what were the fingers that were involved in the uh, the property itself and its disposition, uh, just just fascinating uh, backstory all the way. Where, where did the prize money come from? The um, prize money uh, for the Can-Am series, the, the uh, series was underwritten by the Johnson Wax Corporation, uh, a family company. And uh, uh, so that, that was underwritten. Uh, some, of the, some of the purses were underwritten by the Stardust Racing Association uh, that you, you, had men- you had mentioned that earlier. That was a separate uh, stock corporation from the uh, Carrot Incorporated that was the gambling operator of the Stardust Hotel and Casino. The, the common figure in both of those operations were, were, were Mo Dalitz and Allard Rowan. People generally uh, associate Mo Dalitz with the mob and Allard Rowan kind of, kind of uh, right, right behind him to some extent. They were involved in any number of interesting, really sordid stories uh, in the uh, 1950s and 60s. But then I also found a very interesting connection with, uh, with Johnson Wax and, and the grandson of the founder uh, investing in the, uh, the, uh, uh, one of the early, very early gambling corporations that still held the Stardust Raceway property as its asset. He was an early controlled group investor in that gambling corporation that became its own national story. Uh, Charlie Finley from the A's invested in that, in that gambling corporation. Uh, I think that's roughly in the 1969 uh, time frame, and that Charlie Finley's investment in a gambling company became a huge national story. Just the, the raceway was kind of a, of a nexus that that uh, uh, any number of things fed into it, any number of things uh, grew out of it. You, oh, asked what, you asked me where the purses came from, and and indeed Johnson Wax underwrote the uh, the Can Am series, and it it was renowned for its. Uh, it's it's a cash purse at the time. It it paid pretty well, but but Jay Wax was the uh, the underwriter. Was there any evidence of um, uh, that you could determine of of influencing the race results? I could not. I simply could not. Um, the um, the best uh, information I could find was that none of the cas- uh, casinos or sports books took any action on the racing themselves. I couldn't find any evidence that. That you know, like 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 any sporting event, there's probably friendly wagering in the in the pits or the paddock or maybe even the clubhouse, but uh, I couldn't find anything beyond that. Uh, the most compelling entries I found were the the op-ed pieces in 1954 about uh, you know, well maybe we should take a wrench to a gambler's face if he tries to influence the outcome of the event, and uh, later uh, as as the Can Am series was firing up out of Stardust that. That uh, they, if you if you wanted to place a a, a bet in a sports book on uh, on Can-Am, you'd be out of luck because they didn't take any action. That's interesting. All right. Well, so uh, I um, I'm going to shift gears and and segue into the the Caesars thing. But before we get to that, and you've hinted at it before, right? So 
the the Stardust uh, experiment, if you will, I don't know, uh, in racing essentially ends in in 71 or so. Um, but then uh, it, it's the the rise of this sort of, shall we say, replacement track, which almost feels to me more racing centric, right, versus being sort of an adjunct to uh, a hotel and gambling and and an excuse and an event sort of a, a faux event creation uh, machine by um, what is now the Las Vegas uh, Motor Speedway, but uh, essentially came right on the heels of the demise of Stardust in what the, the Speedrome was was built around what seventy two or so, right? It, the drag strip first opened in, in seventy two. Um, the uh, and there is connectivity with Stardust. The uh, the drag racing promoter at Stardust. Uh, became one of the uh, influencers in the uh, development of the of uh, the speedrome and was the drag racing promoter out there as well. His name was Larry Horton, long past now, but so he was he was a piece of connectivity between the two. Um, it was it was on a it also was on a piece of of uh, gravel quarry dirt, and uh, there 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 there's there were gravel quarries everywhere, uh, and you know sand and gravel operations around the speedrome. But it, but it is the same basic piece of dirt on which the uh, Las Vegas Motor Speedway is now built. So I, it's interesting because it, it feels to me like um, I, I mean I think you hinted at it before. Without uh, without Stardust, there maybe wouldn't be uh, what we know today as Las Vegas Motor Speedway. No, it might have turned out much, much differently. Um, and another thing that was lost. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, race centric, but uh, in the Stardust book, there's there's images. Where you can you, from Stardust, you could see the strip. You you could see the the, uh, the the guest room towers and the tall signage of of the strip uh, out at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. No one really gets a view of of the strip. It's so far out in the northeast corner of the valley. So that that sort of connectivity was lost. Uh, Mario Andretti tested a Ford Can Am prototype in 1967, and and uh, he had a lot of fun telling telling me the story, but. But he invited his wife, at, you know, his, his, his now departed wife, Deanne, to come. And, and, and he said, the car will probably ba- break. I'll be back by the poolside within 15 minutes after I get out there. And the car did break, and he was back at the pool within 15 minutes. But Stardust had that sort of connectivity to the strip geographically. And unfortunately, the speedrome is, it's, uh, oh, good, 15, approaching 20 miles from the heart of the Las Vegas Strip. Yeah, I just get the sense, though, that, that uh, the – uh, the Stardust facility almost felt, um, I don't know, I want to call it temporary, but it, it it certainly didn't seem like it was designed with, I guess, a uh, a rich racing future ahead of it. It was more of a, um, I don't know, a, 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 a an arena, if you will, built somewhat for convenience, whereas it feels to me, based on my crack research, that um, the things that followed it, uh, you know, Speedway Park and um, the Speedrome before that, and 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 then in earnest the sort of rebuilt uh, 1996 version of what is now the Las Vegas Motor Speedway almost felt like that was more sort of the, I guess, concentrated effort to have a, a long-lasting facility that would attract top top brand racing for for years to come. Definitely. Uh, the Las Vegas Motor Speedway project, uh, it still involved 
uh, gambling operator uh, investment, but it was it, it was an investment that that was definitely intended to produce a permanent facility. Um, and uh, Stardust, yeah, much more of a much more of a placeholder. I, I don't think my research, my recollections, I don't think Stardust was really improved after its first year of operation. It just kind of languished for the last five years of its of its op, of its on and off operational life. Okay, that's which then now makes your current book and your current obsession, the Caesar's Palace Grand Prix of the early 1980s, that much more intriguing, at least to me. Now, um, you know, it, again, in the title of that book, right, the word or with the term organized crime shows up, right? All right. So there's there's clearly a theme there. And but I mean, we've just now described sort of the I guess the origin story of of of, I guess, sort of top tier uh, uh, racing in, in the, in the form of this Stardust facility and, and what it ultimately somewhat begot, which was the Las Vegas Motor Speedway that exists today. But now here we go back again to a much more, uh, I guess the word I'm looking for is blatant connection, if you will, at least in name. And certainly it seems in, in ties as well. Um, here we go again. We've got a, a another gambling related hotel uh, taking a stab at creating another event like environment around racing in the form of, of this thing called the Caesars Palace Grand Prix. So how about the origin story of that late seventies, early eighties, this began, this was a thing that ran for a few years starting in 1981. What was the, what's sort of the backstory of this? And I guess I, I'll just throw it out. When did, when did uh, evil Knievel do his famous, first jump of the fountains was that in 69 what was that 67 okay so sure it was 67 so caesar's palace had for at least a decade or two become almost uh synonymous with sort of these showtime events of some sort and this almost seems like an ultimate expression of that to some extent uh i would agree um yeah they've been promoting um the, the the just premier class uh, heavyweight boxing matches, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, Thomas Hearns were on the Caesars campus. The uh, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, but you say campus, you see parking lot, right? I mean, it was just like they would build temporary stadia in these in these parking lots, right? Correct. Uh, more 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 uh, to the to the west behind the resort than than over in the parking area for the uh, for the boxing events, but. Yeah, uh, they had brand name concerts and, and uh, they had uh, uh, Jimmy Connors tennis matches there. And and uh, it, it was really the, the it was kind of the the uh, uh, recreational. I'm going to use the term genius. He uh, he tried what a lot of people had never tried before. And that was uh, Clifford Perlman. Uh, the, his company acquired Caesars Palace in 1969. A lot of backstory there. Uh, and uh, he he was the. Uh, he was the person who basically greenlighted the Grand Prix concept, and uh, he became the point of connectivity to the uh, organized crime syndicate uh, uh, in 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 name and in 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 apparent deed uh, allegedly. Uh, you have to use that word a lot in the book, and uh, uh, but when I, you know, I was casting about for what to write next after Stardust, and and I, um, Mario Andretti, and I had talked about the Caesar's Palace Grand Prix when I was interviewed him for Stardust and I hadn't thought much about the, the Grand Prix until Nikki Lauda died a few years ago. 
And I, I, uh, I remember Nikki racing at the Grand, you know, the 82 Grand Prix and, and started bumping around on that subject a bit. And I, I still had my 81 Grand Prix program and I opened it up and there's Clifford, Clifford Perlman, the first picture in the program. And, and uh, I thought, wait a minute, Clifford Perlman didn't, wasn't his name mentioned on the Abscam tapes? If you remember that, uh, uh, that. Oh, that, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and so I thought, oh man, I think this might be the next book. Um, and so, yeah, that, that became uh, a uh, really intricate piece of study. Uh, and uh, here I've got, you know, Clifford Perlman in the program. I've got him on the podium. I've got him in the paddock. He's, he's a, he's a big creational force in the, in the uh, development of this Grand Prix. Uh, he, he wasn't the only force in the development of it, but, but uh, he's also, uh, he and Caesar's palace are doing property deals with the, uh, the alleged number two in the national organized crime syndicate. And so it just, th- those, those sorts of connections cannot be just could not be excused away. Uh, so um, he's, he's in any number of photos uh, depicting the event. And uh, uh, he was just a, a constant thread through the 19, uh, the uh, let's say the 1970s into the early eighties with the securities and exchange commission. And, uh, uh, how he acquired the hotel, the the uh, how his little Lums Incorporated hot dog stand company acquired Caesar's Palace and Caesar's World in the first place, and it was Caesar's World, the operating company, and then uh, how how he uh, how the stock of the company was managed from that point, and how these these deals were cultivated with with uh, people with whom, as a gambling operator, he should not be uh, getting into deals with, but he did. And uh, it's a it's a heck of a piece of backstory to the Caesars Palace Grand Prix. All right. So what is the Caesars Palace Grand Prix? This is an event that uh, essentially uh, sort of comes out of I don't want to say nowhere, but I mean, this is a circuit that, you know, I guess Watkins Glen was sort of on the circuit for a period of time. Long Beach, very popular Um but all of a sudden, and I, I don't know how this sort of pops up, but in 1981, Las Vegas somehow makes a a run for getting onto the the Formula One circuit. Yes, uh, and and uh, you mentioned Watkins Glen and Long Beach. They're they're they both influence this outcome, uh, and the probably the biggest influencer in that is is uh, was Bernie Ecclestone. Uh, he was the he was the owner of the Brabham Formula One team. He was also the preeminent of the Formula One Constructors Association, and he effectively controlled the sport. Uh, he he sold the he sold the commercial rights to the sport, and just in the last three years or so, uh, he he ran herd over the sport for about forty years, roughly maybe 40, 45 years. Uh, he got he he, uh, he Watkins Glen was was kind of a fan favorite. But they weren't they weren't improving their facilities at at uh, in the way he wanted them to, wanted to see them improved, and so uh, Watkins the last U.S. Grand Prix at Watkins Glen was in 1980. He was uh, influential in the in the approval of the Long Beach Grand Prix that was the mas- that was masterminded by Chris Pook. Um, but then uh, fairly early in the in the lifeline of uh, the Long Beach Grand Prix as a Formula One event. There's rumblings about an event. Uh, maybe there, maybe there, maybe there will be some interest in an event happening in Las Vegas. Uh, Bernie Ecclestone loved Las Vegas. 
he is, he was well known as as a as an avid gambler, high stakes gambler. One of one of his passions and proclivities in his life, and so he he was he was he was one of the points of origin of of uh, of it coming to Las Vegas, and uh, where what, what better place to have it than Caesar's Palace? In that regard, it's kind of a corollary to the Monaco Grand Prix, where there is also uh, you know uh, gambling resorts in the principality there. And Bernie Ecclestone at the time he he envisioned Formula One racing through the metropolitan sky the large metropolitan skylines of America. And uh, uh, Las Vegas was one of those uh, that he had envisioned. And, and Formula One still envisions a return to Las Vegas after the, I mean, it hasn't been here since 1982. Yeah, uh, that, that's the, interesting. That's literally been sort of floated ever. And I guess since now that uh, Liberty Media uh, took over Formula One, there's there's a talk about doing it literally right down the strip. A little hard to imagine. Uh, it has the, and, and in fact, the Caesars Palace Grand Prix at one point, was designed to run down a quarter mile stretch of Las Vegas Boulevard in front of Caesar's Palace. Uh, the the strip, however, is is still U.S. Route 91, and so there's uh, federal government approvals that that will will uh, that add a layer of bureaucracy to that effort. There was also uh, a fairly well publicized effort to have a Formula One, Formula One event here in 1996. In fact, a two-page spread appeared in the program of the 95 Indy 500, and it, de- it depicted a, a pretty dramatic course running down the Las Vegas Strip and around the grounds of the, uh, the MGM, and it, it just fizzled. It did not happen, and it, it kind of led to a, any number of, of overtures to bring Formula One back, none of which have obviously borne fruit to this point. All right. For our audience, what, can you describe um... – uh, the sort of the layout of of this track. And, and if I look at courtesy of ultimate racing history.com, which is, oh boy, what a time suck you're going to find that in that sense. <laughs> um, I mean, it's got every single race, I think, in every single city that's ever been run. It's fascinating uh, and endlessly so. But it looks to me like literally this, uh, this facility existed one, two, three, four weekends, really, uh, uh, in 81, 82, 83, and 84. Um, so it feels to me, and I'm guessing it was very temporary again in nature sounds familiar, but certainly the layout of this track, at least the first two years was for formula one, right? Um, correct. Um, I guess two questions in there. Number one, can you describe sort of what this parking lot based setup looked like, um, and how it sort of ran? And then number two, uh, what was it about this race that uh, endeared it to Formula One, but then somehow didn't within a span of two years? It's a, it's a very interesting study, uh, definitely. The track, the, the 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 popular culture on the track is that it was run through a parking lot. Uh, the parking lot just happened to be available acreage. Um, the 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 race was not going to go out on the strip, although they although they wanted to. And so the, the parking lot itself, which was still ground level, free ground level parking, provided some acreage. There was also uh, fallow dirt to the immediately to the north that was owned by the Summa Corporation, the successor company to the Howard Hughes Tool Company af- uh, after uh, Hughes passed on. And so Caesar struck a lease, a short term lease with Summa for that property every year. It, it remained fallow until five years or so after the, the last Grand Prix event. But then Formula One has some pretty rigid specifications for its for its for the asphalt systems upon which these these uh, 
700 horsepower machines at the time were, were going to race. And uh, so as the track was designed and the, the track was kind of the track design was kind of a, a consortium of of Formula One, uh, Chris Pook, the Long Beach Grand Prix Corporation, who was effectively the producer of the Caesars Palace, at least the first three Caesars Palace Grand Prix events, and Anthony Marnell, uh, architect, who was also the designer and joint venture constructor of the constructor of the 27-story fantasy tower on the north side of the Caesars campus. So they put together this layout, kind of a kind of a a, a big uh, oval loop around the conjoined properties, and then at turn one, this it would it would turn into the infield for a series of of a, kind of a ribbon candy series of finger shaped turns, and then back out onto the uh, a long straight on the north side, a long straight on the west side, and then rejoin the front straight on the south side of the property. It's a pretty famously maligned circuit layout, probably the most hotly debated uh, Formula One venue that's ever raced. Uh, and uh, it doesn't look like any other Formula One track anywhere. But contrary to, again, contrary to popular culture, it was not raced uh, in a, uh, you know, on parking lot asphalt. Everything was excavated out and replaced with Formula One specification uh, asphalt sections. Interesting. But it, it, it did get a reputation very quickly as being... Among the perhaps worst uh, uh, Formula One uh, circuits, I, I'm guessing it's because, well, I, what was it? I mean, if you look at, if you see the visuals, I'm looking at it right now. I mean, it, this looks, it's a very, uh, I, it's hard to describe. It almost looks like, um, uh, it looks somewhat repetitive, um, <laughs> I guess, uh, being, being, being charitable. Um, I'm guessing it was relatively, if not completely flat. Um, and even despite it not being in the parking lot, but being sort of made uh, to specifications, I got to think the heat and and or the dust and or whatever. Um, I, I, I think it, it didn't make for necessarily a great package because it also wasn't a stadium per se. Right. It was it was or a, a, a sort of a racing facility. It was sort of not unlike uh, creating an artificial back boxing ring uh, for the event and then taking it down. It felt looks like it was very temporary for those weekends. You make a good analogy because, yeah, they erected temporary boxing rings in the back. They had to comply with WBA and WBC specifications. And then on Monday, they tear them down. And that's pretty much what they did with the Caesars Palace Grand Prix for four years running. Uh, they'd race through Sunday. And then at least for the first three years, the Long Beach Grand Prix Association would tear down the facilities and, and restore the uh, restore the parking system and uh, take down all the fences, the tire barriers, on and on and on. Uh, probably had it. It was probably all gone, just like a just like a pop up carnival. Probably all gone within two days. So, what takes its place? What, I mean, how, how does F one sort of say thanks, but no thanks? And and I guess it looks like Cart came in uh, for the two years after that to kind of pick up the slack and 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 adopt this uh, this facility for their circuit. Correct. I, I, interestingly, um, I believe it was in eighty two. Might have been. You know, this thing really, it, it, there was supposed to be a 1980 Caesars Palace Grand Prix that didn't happen. Uh, that's that's it's a pretty fascinating back and forth in, in uh, Chapter 8 of the book. But even in Chapter 9, when 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 there, and the 81 event did happen, uh, there was already overtures with IndyCar. There were there were there were lots there was lots of conversation about doing a Formula One IndyCar doubleheader on the same track. And that re, those that resurfaced in 1982. 
ultimately, uh, the Grand Prix exercise came down to money. It didn't, it didn't uh, favorably influence the count room take at the end of the night. And uh, at the time, Bernie Ecclestone's fees were, were skyrocketing every year. Uh, I think that's fair to say. And so the, 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 the equation simply did not pencil uh, by the end of 82. Um, it w- I don't remember the duration of the contract offhand that Formula One struck uh, and, and Bernie's organization, FOCA, struck with Caesars Palace, but it, it was probably a traditional five-year agreement, lasted two years. Enter IndyCar for certain, and uh, they carried it for 83 and 84, and then pretty much the same thing happened. Uh, it's not setting any gargantuan attendance records. The other properties on the Strip are not supporting it. Uh, anybody who goes to the event has to walk through the Caesars Palace Casino to get anywhere, so the other operators are not not real thrilled about uh, offering junket packages to their gamblers, and so the event just could not could not continue beyond what it was. There were certainly efforts in the press for a uh, 1985 IndyCar Caesar's Palace Grand Prix. It went nowhere, and uh, uh, that event, the the Caesar's Palace uh, season-ending event, uh, oddly enough, transitioned to uh, a, a uh, an IndyCar event in Miami. Uh, kind of pointed up a lot of a lot of symmetry between Las Vegas and Miami in this storyline. This also speaks to, um, I guess, sort of the the battle of the circuits, right? Because all the while, you've got now this is sort of this the second foray, if you will, into whether you want to call it road course or or Formula One or Kart or or uh, uh, Can Am or Trans Am. Uh, and I see Willie T. Ribs one of the one of the uh, one one of the um, uh, the Trans Am um, uh, events. Willie T. Ribbs still going at it, by the way, uh, in uh, the uh, the recently completed or the first season of um, uh, of that circuit that uh, Tony Stewart uh, put together in the short tracks uh, with those yes, uh, sort of the cart, well. yeah, the cart 2.0 kind of thing, uh, which is it's just great to see him still still out and about and, and just you know and sticking it to everybody uh, out there. But um, I, I digress a bit. Um, but I guess where I'm going is that all the while you you had NASCAR kind of uh, moving right along, shall we say, just up the uh, just up the highway there at uh, what is was now then known as the Las Vegas Motor Speedway, right? So I, I guess I'm I'm wondering, sort of aloud, uh, was this really kind of you know why do you think uh, these uh, longer uh, and uh, I guess, more rarefied, I guess, forms of racing versus the more stock car oriented version of NASCAR. Why do you think there's been so many fits and starts and, and will it ever have a future again in Las Vegas, given the stability of the, the, the Vegas Speedway and, and NASCAR all these years? It's, it's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know that there's easy answers, but um, for that matter, you, you mentioned Willie Ribs. There was a NASCAR event uh a Winston West NASCAR event at the 1984 Caesars Palace Grand Prix, I believe, uh, a counterpart to the uh, to the IndyCar event. Um, after after '84, uh, there was kind of there was kind of a vacuum here in the valley. Uh, they, they, these these were not penciling these these events did not pencil to uh, uh, to um, underscore the count room take in the casino, and so. Uh, there's there's a good 15 years between, um, or I'm sorry, 12 years between the last Caesar's Palace IndyCar Grand Prix and the first um, 
in an Indy Racing League event at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. I believe it was 96, that first event there. Um, and yet, yes, there was racing at uh, the Speedrome slash Speedway Park. Uh, it was never premier level racing. It was never NHRA National or, or IndyCar or, or uh, uh, NASCAR Winston Cup. It was always a, a B or a C tier event. And it just it kind of points up the, the 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 difficulties of bringing these these peripheral attractions into this valley if they don't again if they don't uh, if they don't uh, fatten up the count room take it's it's going to be really difficult for them to to stay Las Vegas in 2021 it's it's a it's a it's a much more evolved metropolis it's a much more evolved gambling entertainment destination economy in the 80s and 90s it was still it was still learning and, and growing and and trying to perfect that synthesis of of gambling and hospitality and and experiential uh entertainment so i but you say you're it sounds like you say you feel there's a chance still right especially now given the seemingly almost overnight embrace now of uh professional sports in las vegas where just a couple of years ago and a Supreme court case ago, uh, there was a sort of a, uh, an arm's length relationship with, with Las Vegas. And now all of a sudden it seems to be sort of a, a warm, loving and uh, seemingly unlimited business proposition future together. Cue the pictures of Mark Davis at the slot machines. Right. Uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. I, with the, with the Vegas Golden Knights and, and the Las Vegas Raiders, I said, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, now I have seen it. Uh, Formula One, I just don't know that it can run on the Las Vegas Strip. I'll believe it when I see it. But uh, obviously, I've, I've been wrong twice now in, uh, in Major League Professional Sports. And uh, uh, the money that, the, the money that is, in, is engaged in Formula One as a, as a global brand, uh, maybe it can do things that that the uh, the operators of, of the 80s and the 90s just could not get done. And maybe it'll be something like the synthesis of, of uh, a big convention like uh, CES or, or something like that that'll that'll finally cause it to to, uh, uh, you know, tip and uh, p- people will literally see Formula One on the strip. All right. So where, where do you I guess sort of to wrap up, I ask this question of a lot of, uh, you know, when we talk about teams and, and, and leagues or something that, that come and go. And there are various halls of fame and those kinds of things. But, but, you know, I, I think what you've described in, 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 uh, in great detail in, in both of these books, and I'll let you promote them in a second. Um, what, where do you, what is, what is the legacy of these two uh, races and let's call them facilities for, uh, you know, maybe with a small case letter F um, because it's clear that, you know, without these uh, efforts, right. We wouldn't be having this conversation about the potential of racing down the strip again in a, in a Formula One setting. But it almost feels to me like Las Vegas Motor Speedway wouldn't even exist without, say, the Stardust uh, adventure in the 60s. Um, you know, I, I guess the point is that these are parts of the Las Vegas racing fabric, right, that shouldn't be forgotten because without them, we wouldn't sort of even have these, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. Very definitely. Um, the... Uh... Stardust International Raceway will always be remembered for the uh, uh, the hugely popular, uh, uh, lavishly praised, and long forgotten Can Am series, the Canadian American Challenge Cup, the cream of the crop, nationally and internationally raced that event, and Stardust uh, hosted it for the its uh, the uh, 
finale event for the first three years and decided the champion. So I think that's the, that's that's the true motorsports legacy of, of Stardust. Caesars, the Caesars Palace Grand Prix was the first uh, host resort uh, luxury branded naming of a Formula One event, as opposed to Long Beach Grand Prix or the U.S. Grand Prix at Watkins Glen. It was it was it was named for the host resort, which I thought was was extremely clever and and revolutionary for the time. Uh, it so the Caesars Palace Grand Prix brought Formula One to the proximity of the Las Vegas Strip. Turn one was just a was just a few yards from from the pavement of the most famous boulevard of the Western United States. So I think there's there's legacy there, and the '83 and '84 events transitioned to Kart IndyCar, but that brought the IndyCar series back to the Las Vegas Valley for the first time in 15 years since Stardust, uh, and it returned uh, those those events also returned uh, Mario Andretti to Las Vegas to race once again. I like that as a legacy piece also. And yes, who knows what Las Vegas Motor Speedway, if there would be a motor speedway, if these earlier formative efforts at these premier level motorsports had never happened, there was an effort to bring, to take, to get to uh, run Formula One at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, apparently, at one point. So, uh, yeah, there's there's definitely connective tissue between these, these books and these facilities and uh, they did bring extremely prominent racing to the Las Vegas Valley. Uh, and and uh, I love them for that. They're otherwise part of Las Vegas lore, uh, organized crime, uh, and the names behind it. And, and, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the foundations of this valley. People, people still love to you know, reminisce about Bugsy Siegel in the good old days. Right, fascinating stuff. Uh, I love getting into old racetracks and, and the various races that were run there and, and the whys and the hows and the whos. Um, pretty interesting stuff. And, and uh, you, the argument could be made, right, that uh, these uh, little histories of the Stardust International Raceway uh, and uh, the Caesars Palace, uh, let's call it, temporary facility devoted to their uh, Grand Prix uh, exploits in the early 80s, uh, should be remembered in some way, shape, or form beyond these books, which we'll uh, tell you about in one just one second. But maybe, God forbid, you could actually uh, house maybe a wall somewhere or some kind of commemoration at the uh, Las Vegas Motor Speedway as folks go there for the current Indy races or uh, NASCAR races. So, uh, I don't know, a little crusade there. Why don't we uh, get that sort of uh, going out there? So next time you're out there for uh, an Indy race, which I think is uh, coming up soon, or next uh, spring and I think fall, two races for NASCAR, sets of races. How about uh, asking the uh, the ticket takers there, hey, where's uh, where can I find out more about the Caesars Palace Grand Prix uh, and this Stardust International Raceway? Hey, why not even at the Caesars Palace uh, uh, Hotel itself? Maybe that would be the good place to kind of at least talk about the Grand Prix. I don't know. I digress. Uh, it's just me, perhaps. Uh, however, uh, in the interim, get the books, will you? They're 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 fantastically uh, detailed. There's great photography in there. It is, it is, there's so much rich information in here. If you're, if you fancy yourself as uh, interested in uh, not only racing, uh, but also the history of Las Vegas itself, gambling, the hotels, the, the people, the mobs, uh, characters behind them, all of them, these books are well worth your, um, uh, your uh, reading. Uh, because it's really the it conjoins with uh, with that story these uh, these interesting stories the books are called 
Caesars Palace Grand Prix, Las Vegas, organized crime, and the pinnacle of motorsport. Um, it is uh, published by uh, our friends at McFarland Press. Uh, that's one book you want to get. The other book you want to get is the one that came out a couple of years back called Stardust International Raceway, Motorsports Meets the Mob in Vegas, 1965 to 1971. Uh, also published by McFarland. They are both written by our guest this week, Randy Cannon. Get them. They're tremendous. They're awesome. And uh, you'll learn a ton, as I did. Uh, one of the best ways you can buy them, wherever good books are found, of course, or just go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode with Randy Cannon, number 236, by the way, and uh, just click on the convenient links there to each of these books that will take you to Amazon. You can get them like almost overnight, frankly, uh, or perhaps instantly on Kindle if you'd like it that way. And by doing so, you'll give us a couple of... Um, a couple of shekels, a couple of uh, rubles of of uh, financial love uh, to, uh, you know, help keep the lights on for this little show. So we appreciate you buying those books and all the other ones, by the way, from all of our various other episodes through those links. Um, you know, you don't have to, but uh, if you if you can go out of your way to do it, we uh, we greatly appreciate it. And I, I know Randy will, too, for sure. Uh, what else? While you're on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, uh, you can uh, follow uh, us on social media. You'll find us uh, on uh, Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, you can find us at Good Seats Still Available on Instagram. And you also find a little Facebook page devoted to us as well. Just search up Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us there too. If you'd like to send us an email, please go ahead. Uh, we're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, let's see what else. How about uh, joining our email newsletter that we like to put out every weekend to give you a little head start as to what we're going to be talking about that uh, forthcoming week. Uh, just search uh, on the website at goodseatsstillavailable.com and find that link. Give us your name and your email address. That's all we need. And boom, voila, you're on the VIP list for such. Uh, what else? How about uh, Jerry Payne? You know him, you love him. You can't live without him. Rooting hard for those Atlanta Braves. God bless him. Uh, and uh, without his help, we can't do this show for sure. Jerry Payne, audio excellence. Thank you, sir, for all of your uh, knob twiddling. Uh, this week as uh, we thank you each and every week for sure. Thank you, of course, great and kind listeners. Thank you for your uh, your emails and all your kinds of uh, uh, support. Uh, I just, I'm amazed at, uh, just got a couple of emails uh, just last week from uh, uh, from Russia and uh, in um, a couple of places in Africa, if you can believe it. I just, I'm amazed at just who listens and, and where people are listening to this show uh, God bless you all and uh, more great stuff to come and hopefully uh, some more uh, listener requests, shall we say, uh, to come. All right. That's it for me. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, stay safe, everybody. Buckle up if you're going to be driving out there. Take care and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.